Here's a question. What do the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences and Popular Mechanics have in common? We both had Olivia Munn host our movie awards. On February 13th, Munn hosted the Scientific and Technical Awards alongside Jason Siegel. We've all heard the phrase movie magic. Well, this was a night to celebrate all the guys who never get on screen, but are perhaps more responsible for the magic in the movies than the stars themselves. It was a very popular mechanics-y crowd, and editor-in-chief Ryan D'Agostino was there. On today's episode, he stops by the studio to tell us what he learned. After that, Laris Orkanich talks to someone who's already experienced a radically different version of days and weeks, as well as other things most of us take for granted, like gravity and toilets. Astronaut Mike Hopkins spent 166 days on the International Space Station, and he takes on a lightning round of our questions about what it's like up there. Finally, we check in with Otto's editor Ezra Dyer about auto lease swapping sites, which can help you get out of your boring sedan into a Bentley with cash incentive. We'll tell you, stupid or amazing. I'm Kevin Dupsik, and this is How Your World Works. Okay, so if you're a movie fan, you probably know the Academy Awards are on Sunday. But you might not be aware that February 13th was the Academy's Scientific and Technical Awards. This was a gala event hosted by Olivia Munn and Jason Siegel. And because Popular Mechanics is a proud supporter, Ryan D'Agostino was there. Can you tell me about the night? Yeah, I can. It was, it was a great night. We were pleased and, and proud to be supporting the event. They've been giving out these scientific and, and technical awards for like you know 80 years or something. And, uh, but they're typically shown in that two-minute clip at the, at the big <laughs> right. Oscars. You know, where the whoever hosted the Science and Technical Awards comes on and says, well, two weeks ago I hosted this, and they show a brief clip. Uh, it turns out it's, it's, it's quite a long and inspiring night. So it was really, really fun. Black yeah. tie, the whole bit. Were the hosts good? Okay. The hosts were Olivia Munn and Jason Siegel. And, and one of the things I learned that night, in addition to a lot about the science and technology behind movies, is that Olivia Munn is hilarious. She... I kind of knew this. Um, Jason Siegel, we already knew he was funny. He's sort of yeah. a comic actor. Olivia Munn was, was fantastic. They had clearly worked out their routine ahead of time, rehearsed. <laughs> they were stuck in all kinds of jokes. And she was on our cover uh, last February because she's a real pop and mechanics kind of woman. And, uh, and they just they killed it all night long. They, went just, they didn't make fun of these, these. It's like a room full of geniuses. and they, right. they didn't make fun of them. But so much of what these awards were honoring is was like so far over the heads of them admittedly and most of us <laughs> would be too uh so they poked fun at themselves a little bit and they yeah but they it was it was clear they were they were truly honoring these these people in the audience yeah okay so you said you said you learned a lot of things that night what else i did in addition to the fact that olivia Munn is hilarious uh, i learned the popping mechanics actually maybe it's not surprising but it was just it, um it struck me how popular it is among this community i mean these are engineers scientists um roboticists, mm -hmm. uh, they're the technically minded class of Hollywood filmmaking. And there was the name of Pop and Mechanics was, you know, on the on the wall and on the menu and stuff. And it was clear we were playing a role in this. And I got the chance to meet a lot of these uh, men and women throughout the night. And they were they were kind of psyched that Pop and Mechanics was there. So I was that was pleasing. And, and they told me lots of stories about how they used to read it and how <laughs> some of them had even helped them get into this field. And then the biggest thing I learned was that was the extent and the, the depth of genius and creativity that exists behind what you see on the screen. Yeah. And that, yes, the, these guys, they may work in, in laboratories or they're not, they're not necessarily on set. You know, they're yeah. not hanging with, with Leonardo. But uh, they are interested in story. They are interested in the storytelling that, is, that makes movies great. 
they they very much see that as their role. And so everything, every camera lens or piece of software that they invent or or develop or create, they see as very much in service of being able to tell great stories. And that was just a, a cool thing that hadn't occurred to me that that would mm-hmm. they, they that they would really emphasize. And and it was cool to see that in sort of award after award. They certainly took great pride in their technical achievements. Yeah. But but so many of them mentioned story, which I thought was inspiring. Yeah. So what were some of the awards that that impressed you? Oh, it was very cool. And they're they're all all over the board. But uh, a, a couple that stand out. One is called the Image Shaker, and the Image Shaker is it's simply an attachment that that works with existing cameras that can make, let's say it's earthquake or the car is landing on the street and bouncing along or all yeah. those things where the camera usually usually the, the the motion that you see in those kinds of scenes it's just the the cinematographer or whoever's operating <laughs> the camera like shaking the camera back and forth really fast you know, and the actors kind of pretending they're uh, slanted you know when Star Trek when the asteroids would hit they would all they just like kind of the lean table. they'd grab the table and lead to one side and then the camera operator would shake the camera, well, <laughs> that's what me and my brother did with the Game Boy camera yeah and it worked. Uh, this is a little bit more realistic and, and highly technical. So the image shaker, this guy, Michael John Kiesling, uh, is this very humble and uh, brilliant guy who invented the image shaker. So uh, it just makes all those scenes more realistic. Another one was very cool. It's called the air wall. The air wall is a giant inflatable green screen. So many movies today obviously use CGI, but I didn't know this. Apparently it's really hard and expensive to set up big green screens outside Weather is an issue, wind, you know, these things, they fall over. <laughs> so this is an inflatable, it looks like a giant bouncy house, and, and they can blow it up on anywhere and to, to, to do these stunts and effects anywhere in the world on any kind of terrain. So uh, this got one of the biggest applauses of the night, so apparently it's a highly yeah. useful development. Then there were things like the Leica rapid prototyping to animate characters in stop-motion movies. Mm-hmm. So this was very cool, and this was a, it was a... A, a team of, of guys up there, and it, it allows them in, in stop motion animation, which uh, we see in this great movie Animalisa, which is nominated this year. Um, it's a it's a great animation technique. It's an it's an old one, but the advances of it in, in it lately and improvements make it much more fun to watch. Well, these guys with their software have made it easier for the artists behind these movies to heighten facial expressions on the characters' faces, or if the camera, if they want a blurry shot, they can they can do that now, which you didn't used to be able to do. So, just uh, these guys were so psyched to be up there on the stage getting an award from the Academy for this. So it was very cool to see. Yeah, and I, I think it, it like all of these things are things where they can take you out of the movie. Like it's almost like it's like good refereeing or something where you don't notice it when it's great. Exactly. If it, if it works and it's great, you don't, you don't notice it. And that's, that's the genius of these guys. And, and that's why the whole vibe of this night, the SciTech Awards, is it's one of humility and great joy. You know, there's, everyone knows who's being awarded ahead of time. So yeah. that way it's not like the other Oscars, the, the big Oscars, where there's all this tension and campaigning and infighting and stuff. It's just a night. It's a celebratory night to to honor these, these you know, amazingly talented and hardworking people. And it's just... Uh, the, the the vibe of it was just it was a room you wanted to be in in Los Angeles that night. Okay, and on Sunday when uh, Libby Munn and Jason Siegel come up, pay close attention to that two minute clip. That's right. Yeah, maybe I'll be in the background. You never know. <laughs> All right, I'll look for you. So speaking of the movies, one thing you learn from them is that just about everything about you can be used to place you at the scene of a crime: fingerprints, bite marks, hair and fiber, footprints. But does that stuff actually work? Last week, an independent commission in Texas concluded a six-month study by urging a moratorium on bite mark identification. 
So here's the thing. According to the Department of Justice, we generally use forensic evidence for one of two things. Individualization, where we identify one specific person, or classification, where we say that somebody is a member of a larger group. For example, they're male or female, they're of a certain age range, or they have a certain hair color. According to a 2009 report from the Department of Justice looking into the veracity of forensic evidence, there's only one type that's been scientifically proven to individualize with a high degree of certainty, and that's nuclear DNA. And bite marks don't just not individualize, they do even worse. According to the Texas Commission, experts couldn't even agree on how to determine if bite marks were human. Now, the problem isn't so much that everybody's mouth isn't a unique and beautiful snowflake, but that a bite mark left on human skin changes over time. Skin is stretchy, it doesn't hold indentations for very long, and fluid's constantly flowing through it. If you bite your own arm twice, a couple of hours apart, the marks are probably going to be different. In legal terms, bite marks fail what we call the Daubert standard for determining if scientific evidence is admissible. The Daubert standard calls for reliability as determined by things like testing, peer review, and established error rates. If we can get those things nailed down for bite marks, it might be back in the mix. But for now, the recommendation is that we don't use them. So Scott Kelly comes back to Earth on March 1st after spending nearly a year in space, putting him at 520 total days, tops amongst American astronauts. The thought of spending that much time up there got us wondering how all the mundane aspects of life work in a cramped, zero-gravity environment like the International Space Station. To find out, Lara Sorokanich spoke to astronaut Mike Hopkins, who, with 166 days on the International Space Station, is no slouch. Mike, thanks for being here with us. Thank you, Laura. It's great to uh, be talking to you and Kevin today. We, we were very curious about a lot of mundane things. Yeah. Um, so if you don't mind... No, I don't mind. And, you know, it's interesting, though, that, you know, sometimes it's the mundane things, the little things that become challenging in space. Yeah. And, and, and so uh, they are important. Can you describe to us what the space is that you live in in the International Space Station? How big is it? And uh, just what that area is like? Yeah, so the, the interior of the International Space Station is, a, is about the size of the inside of a 747 or maybe a five-bedroom house or something like that nature. But it's more along the lines of, say, railroad, four or five uh, uh, subway cars or something that are linked together. Okay. And, and so it's actually pretty roomy. If you were to you know, think about that and having just six people in there, it's, uh, it's not a bad space to live in. Do you take showers? And if so, how does that work? So I did not take a shower for 166 days. Wow. <laughs> so you end up just taking a, a sponge bath okay. while you're up there. So uh, we have towels that have soap in them, and, uh, and we get them wet, and then we just uh, clean off the bath. Okay. And then in regards to that, um, do people smell bad in the International Space Station? Or, uh, you know, it's a close quarters, and I know when I walk into small places with a lot of men living in them, usually they don't smell uh, fresh as a daisy, and you can't open a window up there. Well, the, the good news is that uh, I'm not sure if I smelled or not, because I think it's one of those things that you get used to. And uh, no, actually, I think, though, uh, it's, a, it's a very clean environment, and we really don't uh, end up smelling. You know, those, those sponge baths that we take, I think, do a nice job, okay. and, uh, <laughs> and we stay pretty clean. How do you sleep in the International Space Station, and is it hard? Do you have to take sleeping pills? No, I slept like a baby. It was absolutely fantastic. Um, what we end up doing is we have a sleeping bag that we just strap to the wall, and you crawl in that sleeping bag and uh, zip it up and kind of in your little cocoon, and uh, you, I actually slept very, very well. I'm curious, um, 
you know, like in every movie where somebody is like marooned somewhere or something, eventually it comes out that like urine is sterile and you can drink it. And I was wondering right, about right. where water comes from. And I guess I was yeah. like sort of concerned that maybe that's where. It, it, you you hit the, the nail on the head. Oh. <laughs> Actually, uh, you know, today's urine becomes tomorrow's coffee. Um, <laughs> we, have a re- we have a recycling system on board the International Space Station that uh, takes the urine and it takes condensate out of the air and, and uh, water of that nature and, and cleans it and, and recycle it, and we drink, end up drinking it. So uh, we get about, I think it's about 80% of our, our drinking water, our potable water on board is recycled. Um, so we, you know, we still have to supply water um, from the ground, but uh, you know, we want to try and be as independent of that as we can because water's heavy. And uh, so, yep, we drink our urine. Is sneezing different in space? You know, it's funny. Uh, I don't recall having sneezed in space. You know, a lot of those bodily functions <laughs> um, are are the same okay. uh, in space as they as they are on Earth. Now, what's interesting is um, some of them, like when you sweat, for example, when you're working out here on Earth and you're running and you're getting hot and sweaty, right? The the sweat just kind of falls off. To the ground, right, when you're running on the treadmill? Uh-huh. Well, in space, it doesn't just fall off. And so it tends to, fluids will tend to stick to you. Okay. And so you'll, you'll kind of get this pool of sweat that kind of migrates around you. And oftentimes, you'll start to, you know, you'll feel this little ball of sweat getting in your ear or coming over into your eye. And, <laughs> and so, you know, there's, there's little things like that that uh, because they're in a microgravity environment, particularly things like the fluid behave much differently, and that can make exercise can, can get a little interesting. What about farting? Yep, happens. <laughs> happens all the time. Um, and, you know, what's interesting is uh, uh, in our, the way our crew quarters, the way they're, they're set up is, you know, each each of us has a crew quarter on a different segment of the wall. So someone's got a crew quarter on the deck, and then right next to that, someone's uh, on each of the sides, and then there's one on the overhead. And so if anybody in their crew quarters does that, um, it tends to pass from crew quarter to crew quarter, kind of does the circuit around, so everybody gets to partake. <laughs> so for today's Stupid or Amazing, we're going to take a look at car lease swapping services, and uh, for today's game, I'm joined by Alex George, who seems to stop by more and more these days. Hey, what's up? And on the phone, we have Popular Mechanics Auto's editor, Ezra Dyer, who recently wrote about selling a car. So, Ezra, I'm hoping that your expertise comes in handy here. I'm sure it will. Um, so, these services, you know, I read up a little bit about this, and I have to say that I also saw the big short recently, and I feel suspicious. Like, getting into a lease, and then, you know... It, when you feel ready, just putting it up for sale online and swapping those things around. I think this is why our economy collapsed, isn't it? Uh, well, it, you, you could argue that this is a form of uh, liquidity. You know, you're, maybe this is good for the economy if you can get out of your lease early rather than uh, just, I don't know, getting your car repossessed or something. The idea behind these things is that, uh, you know, say you have a 36-month lease term and you need to get out of it for whatever reason halfway through. This gives you a market for your car. Uh, for somebody else to take over, and on the flip side of it, somebody else might be looking for a car but doesn't need it for 24 months or 36 or the longer terms that are more common if you just walk into a car dealer and set up a lease. Uh, And the other advantage from the buyer's side is that people who are getting rid of their leases can put some money on the table to make it happen. So 
if they really want to get rid of that car, they can subsidize your lease payment, so you can end up with a, uh, a shorter term and potentially a lower payment than you would if you just set up a lease through a dealer. Yeah, this is ins- so. You sent me Ezra a it's a 2012 Bentley Flying Spur W12 engine. The advertised payment five hundred and fourteen dollars and fifty cents a month with a five thousand dollar cash incentive. So you so it's seven months. You get, I come I go for I go to Carmel, Indiana, and get this black on brown uh, machine, and I get paid five thousand dollars, and I pay five hundred fourteen dollars a month to have a Bentley for seven months. Right. So for the cost of a uh, Honda Pilot or something, you can drive a Bentley. And for only seven months, that's the other thing that the advantage of these lease swapping programs is that, uh, you know, you can't just walk walk in and get a seven-month lease on a new car or use one. The, the terms are always longer than that. So that limits the ultimate amount of money that you have to spend. And it opens up possibilities like, I want to drive a Bentley for the summer, or I want to have a Jeep or a convertible for the summer, or uh, you know, a four by four for the winter to go skiing. Whatever you can kind of you can think in those terms rather than I'm stuck with this decision for three years from now. That's that's the part of leasing that always seemed really appealing to me. I had this hang up about having you know uh, like a not owning a vehicle. You know, right? You don't have to. You don't have the huge. Uh, Fear of commitment involved in a seven-month lease, or uh, or your FOMO, fear of missing out on an even better lease. <laughs> yeah. Now, the uh, the flip side of this is that there are also absolutely horrendous deals lurking on these sites as well. And you talked about that Bentley, uh, five hundred bucks a month for seven months, great deal. Uh, I found another Bentley, a 2013 GT Speed, so similar car. Uh, that was being offered for $2,500 a month for 72 months. Now, oh. if, you're, if you're wondering, that adds up to $180,720. So essentially, <laughs> uh, these characters offering that lease are asking you to pay the full price for, I'm sure you can go buy a 2013 GT Speed for $180,000. So... Uh, you know, read the fine print. Are you going to end up paying as much in your lease as you would to simply just buy the car? You know, they're not all, they're not all good deals. Um, and the other thing to look out for is uh, mileage, because leases have a mileage cap. And when you run over that cap, then you start to get into expensive uh, per-mile charges. Oh, they put the screws to you when, you get, when that happens, right? Yes. Uh, and I found an example of that on Swap-A-Lease. There are these, the two main sites are Swap-A-Lease and Lease Trader. Mm-hmm. Uh, Swapolese had a 2013 Toyota Sienna minivan with 36,000 miles on it. Now, the problem is, on that guy's lease, he was allowed 36,000 miles. So, uh, <laughs> you, as soon as you take over his lease, you are against the mileage limit and paying 15 cents a mile. Oh, so, uh, he was subsidizing the payment somewhat, but probably not enough to justify that. And it pretty much said in the fine print, if you take over this lease, you're basically taking it over to get your hands on the buyout option, which in this case was 18500 So that's another way you can look at it, that lease, leases, when they end, you have the option to buy the car. So if there's a particularly good deal there, you can, uh, you can look at that, too. All right, so stupid or amazing, what's the final verdict? Alex, you go first. Oh, I'm completely incentivized by this. I think this is amazing. I'm, it feels like a way... I, I do kind of actually... 
this sounds weird, but I enjoy the element of having to do a little bit of math yourself. It's like, uh, you know, anyone can buy a $100 bottle of wine. If you can find one for 12 bucks, that's really good. You feel a little bit more satisfied. So I think this kind of process, this sounds great. And uh, the chance to have a Bentley for the summer, how cool is that? Yeah. I mean, so I think, um, yeah, I mean, I think maybe we'd all think about it differently if we heard the story from the guy who took on the van that was already at its mileage limit. But um, I, I, I am in favor of allowing people to just find deals that are good for them. I'll say amazing. Well, I'm, I'm on the amazing side on this one as well. Um, as long as you, like I said, do, do your due diligence. Don't get a car that's out of mileage. Uh, don't get a 72-month lease on a used family for 2500 bucks a month. <laughs> it's fairly, fairly obvious stuff. Don't be, a, don't be a dum-dum, and this can be a great thing. So that's our show. Higher World Works is produced by the staff of Popular Mechanics and edited by Jack Dillon. We'd like to thank Sarah Bentley and Andy Bowers from Panoply and Popular Mechanics editor-in-chief Brian D'Agostino. Please subscribe to our show on iTunes, and while you're there, leave us a comment. We really want to know what you think. Also, don't forget to check out our sister show, The Most Useful Podcast Ever. And if you want to read more about life and space, head to our website, popularmechanics.com, where you can also subscribe to the print and digital editions of Popular Mechanics magazine for just $13.99 for one year. This is Kevin Dupsick. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.